0: It's impossible for me to compare racism and sexism because, because I can't, because I'm both a woman and black at the same time. But it's just that with the people I care about, my circle of family and friends, and not all of them are black people, they get racism. So when we have conversations about racism, I never have to explain or convince. But I find that when I talk about sexism, Some of the people I love, people who are Nigerian, people who are American, people who are European, sometimes they want me to convince them. And they will often say, are you really sure it's about gender?
1: Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie is quite sure it's about gender. The Nigerian author of award-winning novels such as Half of a Yellow Sun and Americana became a global household name with her talk, We Should All Be Feminists, which was famously sampled by none other than Beyonce. Since then, the writer, who splits her time between Lagos and the US, has become a prominent cultural critic, who expounds on issues as varied as race in America, feminism, and the increasing intolerance of the left. I'm Megan Gibson, and I sat down with her in London for The Big Interview. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us in London. Thank you. It's nice to be here. As your critically acclaimed, prolific author, I was really surprised to learn That you studied medicine in Nigeria?
0: Well, I did for just one year, Mm -hmm. a year and a half. In Nigeria, when you do well in school, they tell you you have to be a doctor. And if you have any sense, you go along with what you're told, which is what I did. And I remember deciding that I would go along with it and study medicine, even though I didn't want to. I mean, I've always wanted to write, I've always wanted to to tell stories, to create. But I remember thinking, okay, I'll do it. And then I'm going to become a psychiatrist. And then I'm going to use my patient's stories for my fiction. (laughs) That had been my plan. One year into medical school in Nigeria, I just realized I couldn't do it. I think medicine is very noble, very important, but I think you have to really care. And I didn't. So I left.
1: And where did you go then?
0: I left. I went to the US. So I Then decided to leave Nigeria. That's actually why I left Nigeria. I left Nigeria because I didn't want to study medicine. And I went to the U.S. because the U.S. was my chance to do something that was not a science. Because the the whole time in Nigeria I had been in what is called the science track. So then I moved to the U.S. And I was so happy because suddenly I could take classes in literature and music and art history the things I hadn't done, because I, I, my whole life had been chemistry and physics and biology. And I'd never really wanted to study writing either, because I, I kind of felt that studying writing formally might stifle my creativity. So I wanted to study other things. I, was, I wanted to know about history, and I wanted to, to learn about the world, because I think even that really informs fiction.
1: And something that you said is that upon moving to the US at age 19, that's when you first became black. Yes. What did you mean by that?
0: That blackness was not an identity in Nigeria, right? That race wasn't. So ethnicity was, religion was actually the two major identity markers in Nigeria. And so I thought of myself in Nigeria as an Igbo person, my ethnicity, and as a Christian. When I went to the US, I suddenly realized that I was black. Right? And it wasn't just realizing that I was black, right? It was understanding that in America, black meant something, that black was weighted with meaning, with assumptions, with stereotypes, most of which were ugly and negative. And it was quite an adjustment process for me. (laughs) I mean, I remember my professor in one of my first classes in college in the U.S. who had brought back the essays, the first essays we wrote. And he said, who is Ditchie, because Americans constantly mispronounce my name, And I had used my initial, not my first name. So I could have been anybody because I think my last name is not very sort of Africa sounding. And when I said me, he seemed really surprised. And I realized he's surprised because I'm black. He hadn't expected the person who wrote the best essay to be black. And it was a very tiny moment. But for me, it it was also that kind of moment that you never forget, because that's when I realized this is what it means to be black in this country. And I had come from a place where black achievement was ordinary. But now I was in a place where it seemed to be extraordinary, where it seemed to be remarkable to people. And the part of me that is arrogantly Nigerian was just really (laughs) irritated. I just thought, what utter nonsense. I mean, surely, you know, black people are intelligent. right? But it was other things. It was walking into a store, for example, an expensive shop, and suddenly you're, you're getting the kind of look that makes you realize you're not welcome. There, and you know it's about race, and then I started reading. I started reading about African American history because I didn't quite get things. Or people would, there would be some noise in college about oh, somebody said something about watermelons and it's so racist, and I would be utterly confused because I'm like I I don't you know I like watermelons. I don't know why that's a bad thing. <laughs> so I, I started to read, and I sort of came full circle. I came to identify as black, which I think in some ways is like a political. Choice Mm -hmm. and now I think of myself as black, but it's an identity that I take on only when I'm outside Nigeria because I go back to Nigeria and black just isn't a thing, Mm -hmm. right? I go back to Nigeria and I'm Igbo, woman, Christian, but not black.
1: I like how you said you're arrogantly Nigerian. Yes, (laughs) um, obviously, you wrote and published your first novels in America, but Yes. yes, they're set. Well, the first two entirely in Nigeria and the third mostly. I wonder how did moving away from Nigeria kind of shape your ability to write those novels and your perspective on it?
0: Hmm. I think... I think my first novel... Well, actually, I did publish in Nigeria before I left Nigeria, but there were terrible plays that I hope nobody ever reads and a collection of even more terrible poetry, but...
1: We'll be tracking those down now.
0: (laughs) No, don't. (laughs) I say that hoping that the the publisher in Nigeria has has burnt them all. But, you know, it's interesting because I I do sometimes think about it now. My first novel, Purple Hibiscus, I think would have been a very different novel had I not left home because Mm. it's a very... There's something nostalgic about it. It's a coming of age story, but it's there's a sense in which it's also about missing home, which was how I was feeling when I was writing it in the middle of a very cold Connecticut winter. <laughs> I hadn't been home in three years, and Connecticut was not an easy place to, to be in, especially in the winter, and so I started writing this novel. I would written before that a very bad novel that nobody wanted to publish, thank God, and then I wrote, purple hibiscus. And I think it was really about leaving home and missing home and longing for home. And the second one, I think probably would have been the same had I not left because it was about my history. It was about wanting to make sense of not just my family's history, but my country's history about the Biafran War. And so I'm not sure how much that was shaped by leaving home. But I think my first novel, my first published novel was very much shaped by having left Nigeria.
1: Mm. Your 2012 TED Talk, We Should All Be Feminists, became viral, I guess it's safe to say. (laughs) Beyonce sampled it in a song, it was turned into a book. Dior printed it on (laughs) t-shirts. How did it feel to go from literary fiction famous, which you were already critically acclaimed, really well known, but from that to become a global icon of feminism. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sounds very grand. I want a t-shirt that says that I'm a global icon. I think about it a lot, especially since I'm asked about it a lot. And, and I want to be honest in answering it. And I, and, and I think maybe I'm, I don't entirely know. I feel ambivalent. I don't really know how it feels. I mean, it's a strange thing to talk about, because on the one hand, there are things I love about it. I love that I have a platform to talk about what I care about. And I care deeply about feminism. I care deeply about women's issues. And I care about, about them in a very sort of pragmatic way. So I want to talk about how do we actively make women's lives better, even if it in very incremental ways, you know. But it also comes with expectations. People think that you're supposed to be a certain way because you, you've taken on this public role which I didn't plan to. I, I, You know, I never wanted to be a, an icon of feminism. I I gave that talk thinking that nobody would care. And I, I, I remember thinking, I'm going to talk about what I care about. And I know that feminist is a bad word for many people. And, and it continues to be, by the way, despite the fact that there seems to be a sort of shallow patina of trendiness. But fundamentally, the whole idea of feminism still, I think, brings about much hostility. And... I remember thinking, mm, you know, five people will watch it, you know, whatever, but but I'll sleep well at night because I've spoken my truth. So I was taken aback when it became a thing, <laughs> but taken aback in a good way, right? So when Beyonce wanted to sample it, I thought, yes, because I thought now young women and young men who might not otherwise have even heard the term feminism, suddenly will have to engage with it. And for me, I want to make feminism as mainstream as possible. I want everybody to identify as feminists and to act as feminists. And I want us to get to a world where we no longer need feminism. Right? That's my big dream. But it's still strange to be... I suppose I don't wake up in the morning, I think of myself as a global feminist icon. right? So that that kind of How makes... humble <laughs> of you. No, but... <laughs> yeah, I wake up in the morning and while I'm brushing my teeth, I say... You are a <laughs> feminist. I, I do not do that. Sometimes I don't remember. But there are things about it that I've liked. I, I like the, the collaboration with Dior. I was very happy about because I love fashion, for one, but also sort of more seriously, I loved that it was considered that the creative director of Dior, who's a woman I, I very much admire, that it was important to her to make a point about something. And it, it's symbolic, obviously, but I think symbols matter because because they telegraph what matters to you. And so I liked that. And I think maybe there's also a part of me that wants to challenge certain ideas of that idea of a woman being one thing or the other rather than one thing and the other. Mm-hmm. I think I think that this culture, Western culture, African culture, really, world culture, often insists on women being single things, you know, so which is why we're constantly being told, are you going to be a mother? Are you going to be a career person? And I'm thinking, why can't we be both? And the same way that if you're an intellectual, you're not supposed to care about sort of the things that are considered frivolous, like fashion. And I want to challenge that. And I think there's a part of all of this and my, my willing participation in these things that has been strategic way of challenging these ideas, because this is who I am. I'm a person who writes fiction and writes nonfiction and loves politics and history and ideas and fashion and makeup. And I'm all of those things. And I think many women are like that. And, and so there's a part of me that sort of wants to um, hopefully make it easier for the women coming after me to be allowed to be all of those things. Yeah.
1: One thing you've written is that you're angrier about sexism than you are about racism. And that you feel lonely in that anger. Mm. Is, do you still feel lonely?
0: Yes. I actually, I'm not angrier about sexism. And I'm angrier about the reaction of the people close to me. Which, which I think is kind of a different mm-hmm. thing. Because it's, it's impossible for me to compare racism and sexism because, because I can't. I mean, because I'm, I'm both a woman and black at the same time. But it's just that with the people I care about, my circle of family and friends and not all of them are black people, they get racism. So when we have conversations about racism, I never have to explain or convince. But I find that when I talk about sexism, some of the people I love, people who are Nigerian, people who are American, people who are European, sometimes they want me to convince them. And they will often say, are you really sure it's about gender? And I found that that happened a lot during the last US elections, where I was constantly Being asked to prove that Hillary Clinton, that a lot of the coverage she got and a lot of the reaction to her was sexist. And it seemed to me very obvious. And I'm talking about people I care about, people I respect, my family, my friends. And that made me feel very lonely because you want the people around you to care about the things you care about in the same way. And -hmm. and I realized they just didn't. And it seemed to me that if it wasn't very clear and overt, then somehow it wasn't sexism. But they didn't apply that to racism. And I don't know why. And by the way, I mean both men and women, mm-hmm. not just men. And so that, that's what I meant. That's why, that's why I talk about just feeling lonely sometimes in my
1: fight. So do you think with the Me Too movement, has that kind of shepherded in a reckoning with sexism, at least in the U.S.?
0: I think so in a way. I do. I'm cautiously optimistic. <laughs> Um, very cautiously, just just having a sense of the history of women's movements in the West. I know that it's often two steps forward and two and a half back. I think Me Too is important, not just because women are finally telling their stories, but because now they're likely to be believed, right? And there's likely to be some consequence to their story, which I think is almost revolutionary because it's never happened before. But at the same time, that sort of inevitable backlash that happens because, because I'm struck by how even the Me Too stories are covered. There is often A, the sort of insistence that the woman be pure and perfect, right? There's no complexity allowed. So if she's been sexually harassed, she has to be perfect. And, the, and she can't have made any mistakes at all. Otherwise, she loses sympathy. Right. And the second thing I find is that the people who still resist this, the people who still say things like, oh, well, surely she could have just walked out. Oh, you know, this whole talk about power. Surely she could have just, you know. And I'm thinking, actually, no. So I find that even even the coverage of Me Too can often be sexist. And that in itself is telling. And and it can be for me a reason to just start to wonder whether this is in fact the beginning of a revolution or not.
1: You've spoken about the self-righteousness of the left, where anyone who says something that runs afoul of the perceived wisdom of the ideology is basically cast out or demonized. Do you think that that's alienating to people who otherwise might be totally on board with everything else that the left kind of stands for? You know, yes. equality.
0: Yes, I think it's very alienating. I feel alienated. <laughs> I think you know it just seems to me that there's a lack of compassion in some ways on the left and it's it's sad because the left is where one would assume compassion to reside <laughs> right. so and I think of the left as kind of my tribe it's my ideological tribe it's it's the idea of people who believe in inequality of all people who believe that you know everybody matters who believe that healthcare for everyone is a good and sensible thing right actually a human rights, that's what i think healthcare is you know people who believe in the idea that everything cannot be regulated by quote unquote the market but I should also say I'm not at all anti-capitalist. I'm an Igbo woman and everybody who knows about Igbo people in southeastern Nigeria knows that we are crazy capitalists. But I believe in real capitalism where people make things and there's an exchange and not the sort of thing where you wave a wand and magic money appears and then, you know, sort of the way that international finance works, where you're just thinking, what the hell is going on? But anyway, <laughs> but I, I think on the left, there is a kind of increasing orthodoxy There's a way to say things. If you don't say it that way, you get banished. And there's a quickness to outrage. And there's also a quickness to assume ill will. It's almost as though it's impossible to make a distinction between malice and ignorance or malice and curiosity. And I find that people no longer feel comfortable asking questions. So half the time, I don't think people always know what's going on, but they sort of don't say anything because they're worried about what the consequences are. And I've seen young people do that quite a bit where there's a group of young people, somebody says something, oh my God, I can't believe so-and-so said that. And you can imagine that some people are thinking, but why is that wrong? But but they don't say that, because if you say that, everybody then will pounce on you. And of course, I think social media amplifies all of that in just the most awful ways. And, and the reason I think it's important is just on a very practical level, things like what's going to happen in the United States, for example, where I think somebody who is is unstable and uninformed is the president. And I think that needs to change. I think it's up to the left to make that happen. And I'm already struck by how some of the people who might be running, so like the senator from California, whose name I've just forgotten, but I'm struck by how some of the coverage is already about how she's not perfect Mm. and how, well, look, she took money from, I don't know, some corporation. And I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, it's not about perfection, Mm. There's kind of like a childish entitlement and a sort of a childish self-righteousness about some of the discourse where unless you're perfect, you don't get to be part of the party, but then nobody's perfect. And so I find that very troubling about about the left.
1: Well, particularly as you said, in the case of the Democrats, they don't need the Republicans to take them down. They're gonna do it to themselves. Which is
0: which is a shame. Mm-hmm. Which is and, and I think particularly now the way the world is, it's increasingly crucial to try and reverse that this sort of strange trend of, of anti-liberal values that I think not just in the U.S. but in Europe. And to do that, I think there needs to be a united left, right, a, a left that's willing to say we're not perfect, but we're going to push the values we care about. And I don't see that happening. And, and America is the place I know best. I don't see that happening there at all. It's already so fractured. Mm -hmm. And it's fractured for reasons that are just
1: dumb. Well, since you mentioned the president, you grew up in Nigeria. You split your time now between the U.S. and Nigeria. How did it feel seeing Trump become president? And how has it been in the U.S. those last few years?
0: It felt disorienting. America now feels annoyingly familiar. And that's not a good thing. (laughs) Because now I, I feel like I'm in Nigeria where there is nepotism, where there's chaos, where there's uncertainty, where it just seems that there isn't a plan. <laughs> I mean, that there's just sort of stumbling from one thing to the other. And, I mean, Nigeria is actually <laughs> done fairly well in the past maybe 10, 15 years. I grew up in Nigeria, I was under military dictatorships, and I know what that feels like. It's constant uncertainty. And there's that familiar feeling now, being in the U.S., because I wake up every day and I and I read the news and I'm thinking, what's happened now, <laughs> you know? And I actually remember going off to research nuclear war and what that would mean. And I I did, like seriously, I wanted to know, wait, do we need to buy like gas masks? I mean, what actually happens? And I remember thinking when I was reading that, thinking something so terribly sad that this is where we are. So it feels quite disorienting for me. And I feel disappointed as well, because growing up, America was the, the place to look up to Nigerians we we spend a lot of time in nigeria having political arguments and people very angry with the government all the time you know complaints and and often people would say well go to america that would never happen but we can't say that anymore mm-hmm. and there's a almost like a psychic sense of loss to losing that thing that is aspirational to you you know and it's gone and it's going to take a long time for america to to grow back its moral authority i think
1: do you think americans who born in the US have that same sense of sadness. I do.
0: Yeah. I have American friends, yes. I think they do. Actually I think for some of them it's so much worse because they've never I think never conceived of this. <laughs> if you've seen a banana republic, when you see something that looks like it, it's terrible but you kind of know. If you've never seen one, I think it can be just deeply unsettling. And and I have American friends who are not doing very well, I don't think.
1: So, as I mentioned, you divide your time between the U.S. and Nigeria now. After spending some time away from Nigeria and moving back, what did you notice that was different? How did your feelings about the country evolve?
0: I don't know. Was Nigeria different? I mean, Nigeria, also, I guess because I go so often, sometimes it's hard to see what's different. I mean, I like to say that my, my life in Nigeria is fairly similar to my life in the U.S., except for my Wi-Fi is faster in America, Only slightly. And I don't have to, in America, I don't have to think about buying diesel for my generator because there's electricity all the time. (laughs) And in Nigeria, I have a life and the food is better. So that's really the difference. Yeah, Nigeria is a very interesting and complicated place, actually. Right now, I, I feel a sense of disappointment with the Nigerian government because this present government had a lot of goodwill and we had an election that was that I think actually since democracy came has been the most free and fair, and we voted out an incumbent. And so I felt very proud of our democracy. And I feel this new government came in and we had such high expectations and everything is almost just squashed now. So I have a sense of disappointment um, about what's going on in Nigeria. But, But there's also, it's never really been for me about Nigerian politics. It's always been for me the cultural and the social. It's about how people are. I mean, I, I love to be back in Nigeria because it makes me sit up. It makes me sit, you, know, you see people who are just so full of energy, innovation, ideas, and people, there's a wonderful can-do spirit about Nigerian-Nigerians that I find really inspiring. So I spend half my time complaining about the government and the other half of the time just being happy to be among not just people who are my people, but just the sense of we can do anything, even with the most limited resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So, do you still feel just as Nigerian? I know some people who straddle two yeah. different cultures yeah. can sometimes end up feeling neither here nor there.
0: No, I, I do. I think I do feel quite Nigerian. I think my sensibility is Nigerian. Um, I think I, I look at the world through Nigerian eyes. But I also know that I couldn't be happy living entirely in Nigeria. I need to be able to leave Nigeria. I mean, sometimes I've joked about how I think the only reason I can love Nigeria is because I can leave it.
1: (laughs) The same probably could be said about the US.
0: This is true. I wouldn't be happy if I had to live entirely in America either. I I wouldn't be happy at all. So I I feel very lucky that I can do both. But I think my sensibility remains Nigerian because there's still things about America that just utterly puzzle me. Um, And I still kind of make fun of America. What kind of things? And I still can't get over being in a restaurant and somebody says to you, are you still working on that? And I'm thinking, since when <laughs> did eating become walking on? Right? And, and the way that the waiters sort of hover over you endlessly. And, and that's really, of course, a result of people who walk in restaurants not being paid a fair wage. So it's they need culture. to sort of yeah perform for tips, which I think is ugly. But yeah, things like that. I don't understand what the hell baseball is about. And then I don't know why they would call it the World Series, because nobody else in the world cares. I don't know why America doesn't really know that football is not what they do, Where large men jump on one another, things of that sort. Um, And I'm married to a a Nigerian man who adores American football. So you can imagine what it's like at our house on some Sundays where I'm sitting there with a book and just running very unkind commentary about the game. And he is silently watching and sometimes whooping when his team does something (laughs) because it makes no sense. And, you know, there are things I, I really admire about America. I admire America's... There's a sense of possibility about America that has always... Inspired me. But there's also, um, I kind of feel like Americans don't really have friends. They're too busy. There's no time. You know, I think people walk too long. There's too little vacation time. I feel like children are over scheduled. Um, so I'm always thinking about things I want to change about society. But
1: if you could take some bits from one culture and yes, some bits from another culture, yes, create a perfect, yes, perfect country. Yes. Yes. So I wanted to ask about your wear Nigerian project. Yes, because I know you love fashion. <laughs> I do. What inspired that project? Or maybe you could explain what it is. And then.
0: So it's a, I decided um, last year to start wearing mostly Nigerian-made clothes because because I want to support Nigerian designers because I think there's a lot of talent in Nigeria. But also, I mean, it started last year when this government that I talked about had this really just retrograde financial policies from like 1975. So really about protecting the currency and things that just didn't make sense. But anyway, what happened then was that the value of the Naira fell. And suddenly, Nigeria, people were talking about buying Nigerian things to grow the Naira. And I remember thinking about it and thinking, you know, one thing I could do, in fact, is to start to buy Nigerian-made clothes, to wear them publicly, to advertise them, you know, sort of, Deliberately advertise them, and that way, I just sort of felt it would be my way of doing my own part while having fun. Because you know, I, I didn't want to sort of be sanctimonious and say, "Look how I'm helping." No, I was having fun. I was enjoying it. So I started, and it's it's been fun. It's been. I go online. I don't know many of the designers, if any at all, really. I go online. I look for. I find the clothes. I find the designer. Sometimes my cousin helps, and then we order them, and then I wear them. And I've actually. <laughs> I'm having more fun dressing up than I've had in a long time. But the only problem, of course, is that now I find myself constantly thinking about light. So I do events. I'm like, where is the light good for the picture?
1: (laughs) You've got the photographer mind now.
0: (laughs) I'm like, you know, how how good is this light we need to do? How good?
1: (laughs) Well, let me ask you again about politics. Is that something you could ever see yourself getting into? No. Never?
0: I, I never say never. Right. I never say never because you just never know. I used to think, for example, that I would, I could never wear kitten heels, but <laughs> I just bought a pair.
1: <laughs> Anything's possible.
0: <laughs> but in general, hmm, I have thought about it. Really, of course, I have. I feel like you can't be from a place like Nigeria and not sometimes think, surely I can do this. You know, I mean, I can, I can run and and win, and then just fix everything. Right, and just destroy corruption and, and think about the people and make sure everybody had free health care and free primary education. I've thought about it, but I realize I don't, I don't have what it takes. I think politics is quite a difficult thing to do. And I increasingly have um, sympathy for politicians because in some ways you can't win, you know. And there's a, a lot of compromise involved that I don't think I can do. And I don't know that I can be, yeah, I don't know that I could do it but I, I would like to I would like to be on the sidelines and support somebody whose politics I admire.
1: Is there any candidates at the moment?
0: Um no. In the US there's nobody I I haven't really no not really paid attention. But quite frankly in the US I will come out and campaign for anybody who will be a good candidate and who can bring America back to its senses. In Nigeria no, nobody who's declared. I have a good friend who's thinking about it and And if she does it, I'm going to be all out there for her.
1: Well, stay tuned. Chimamanda (laughs) Adichie, thank you. Thank you. The Big Interview is produced by Yolene Goffin and Gaia Lutz and edited by Cassie Galpin. I'm Megan Gibson. Thanks very much for listening.